Interesting. And so you're going up and down. Yeah. Well, I, I don't see any way around it in the way I think, because the way a lot of people think they want to go down and stay down. Mm -hmm. So they want to look at like a genetic profile. Right. And how useful has that? I mean, it doesn't mean it hasn't been useful, sure. but it really hasn't helped the patient in, in right. your world or in other you know, fields, because it, we're not a deterministic system, meaning that our nervous system takes information from inside and outside and works with it. It doesn't, it's, it's not a simple uh, throughput or cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And I use the term intervening variable or mediating variable, where our physiology is actually uh, modulating how outputs affect us. And we know that in your question on the pandemic, and the concept of a retuned autonomic nervous system is very predictive of how threat affects us. If our nervous system is already in a state of defense, threat knocks us totally off, off, uh, out of, off, off our feet. In fact, um, in terms of the pandemic, we, have, we did a study and based on adversity history, people who uh, had more mental health issues, but that adversity history was virtually all the predictive variants about mental health issues during the pandemic was accounted for by subjective measures of their autonomic nervous system. Hmm. So if you, and we also looked at uh, uh, whether or not they got the disease. So we, this was early in it. And of course, adversity history and retuned autonomic nervous systems are really enabling us for creative vulnerability not just for the mental health issues, but for also physical illness. And this has been really the disconnect in the, in the messaging. We talk about pre-existing conditions, but we don't talk about adverse history as a pre-existing condition. Huh. Uh, we talk about obesity, uh, but we don't link obesity to adversity. We go through, uh, what we end up doing is basically blaming people for their vulnerabilities. Huh. And, and it makes the assumption that our intentional brain is in charge when it's really not. So people will eat to calm, they'll gain weight. And the other part is often if you shut down in defenses, you're shifting your metabolic, uh, yeah. how your metabolism goes. So you start building up more fat. Right. Because the body thinks you're, you have to hunker down and survive. Yes. So we need to understand, uh, in a sense, the strategies, which are admirable and heroic, that our body's putting into place, but they don't work well in our society. Right. It's the right strategies at the wrong time. That's right. So, so this relates to, I think I read a book recently, uh, The Body Keeps the Score yeah. uh, at, by Bessel van der Hoek. And um, it so what, what you're saying is that the, there's this stored up trauma and the trauma isn't just the ACEs, you know, the adverse childhood experience kind of things. Yeah. There's so many other levels of trauma that you could be talking about. Yeah. So I actually, uh, my knee jerk reaction to ACEs, even though I think this is an amazing, profound discovery, I think it's a misdirection as well, oh. because it directs everyone towards the event and not to the response. And in a sense, it prioritizes events. I mean, you, you have no idea how many people introduce themselves to me by telling me their ACE number. So it's like, uh, I mean, if it's high, I know they've had a, a very challenged life. So I'm not discounting that. But the issue is most of them that introduced me that way are remarkable. So we know that they're, they're coming into the world with tremendous resilience and they have processed all this and it's just heroic. 
heroic in the sense that their body had the capacity. Now, not everyone has that capacity. And so we have to be careful about blaming people for not surviving or yeah. thriving. Um, but I really feel that uh, we, we tend to uh, prioritize events that are outside of us. We want to try to make our experience caused by other or by other attributes outside of us. And in general, the outside event uh, is only, its effect on us is how our body responds to it. And not everyone's body is in a state that will be as hyper-reactive as others. So when we see kids in the practice who've had this variety of different, uh, you know, potentially challenging inputs. So, and we come in and we see these kids with ADHD or autism or learning disabilities, and so many of them have had so many other, you know, things happening to them. How do you see in terms of the polyvagal theory? How do you see like some of the healing arts that I'm involved with, like chiropractic, how do you see that <clears throat> kind of helping these kids with the polyvagal theory in mind? Okay, so what the polyvagal theory brings both to the client, your patients, and to the therapist, it's the awareness of the physiological state that both the client is in and also with the, what the therapist is in. So you develop an awareness of the others. How do you develop awareness? Well, your muscle tone to a chiropractor is a big flag. Yes. To, and after they listen to what I talk about, what you talk about now, the voice of the intonation of voice will be a big factor. Facial expressivity will be that. You'll ask questions like, are you auditorily hypersensitive or hypersensitive to the world? Meaning, is your body, are the sensory systems in a state of hypervigilance and threat? Mm -hmm. So you learn that. And if they are, you approach your clients different ways. You allow them to have some movement. And I watch some of your videos. Mm -hmm. You allow kids to move. Now, if you're moving, you remember most of uh, medical practices and uh, virtually everything, education, you're supposed to be seated. You're supposed to sit still. But if your body is in a state of threat, you, you can't sit still unless you dissociate, which is not really, you're not really there. So you're literally numbing your feedback loops, which will interfere with your health as well. Okay. But if you're standing and you have the option to move, you now don't have to shut down and you can now detect some of these cues of safety from the voice and face. So I think the dance movement therapists you know, had some very interesting insights. And so did the play therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, the notion was with kids, they need to move. Yes. Nothing wrong with that. But our society says a moving kid is a kid who's not listening. Right. And right. a moving kid is often the kid who can't sit still because their body says, if I sit still, I'm going to be abused. Right, right, right. I think the sitting still is that vulnerability. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I use this kind of... Uh, you know, visual metaphor of accessibility to vulnerability kind of this continuum. So immobilization or sitting still for many of us is accessibility. That's what we want. We want people near us to sit still. But if you, if your physiology is a state of defense, uh, that is not accessibility, it's vulnerability. Right. And so you have to respect where that individual is. Right. And that's, that's what I think I've learned over the years from your work is to allow these kids, like we're, we're taught 
you know, lie down, don't move. That's how we're taught to adjust, you know, and it's probably, you know, for a student doctor relationship, that's the easiest way to describe, you know, it's easiest to have the patient sitting still when you're working on them. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, over time that wasn't working with these kids on the yeah. spectrum or kids with ADHD and your work helped me understand that they don't have to sit still in order for me to deliver an adjustment. The, the problem for like a teacher or a parent or a physician, if the child's not sitting still or turns away, they're triggers to our own bodies and we yes. think they're rejecting us and we, we get angry or we get less available to them. And we have to be, in a sense, more understanding, more compassionate to the state others are in. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, sure. but we know that if we can be that way, we can really do wonderful things. Yes, yes. And I, so and I want to switch gears a little bit because I have another question I think I would love to hear and I think our listeners would love this too. Um, still related, the same topic, of course. So you started working on this back in like the 70s, uh, you know, when you started with respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And I actually started in the 60s. So. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I've been around a long time. I started grad school in 66. And, okay. wow. and there's an emerging discipline called psychophysiology. It was very new. And I got very intrigued by it. Okay. And uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia was not even a word in the scientific discipline, it was a medical term. Right. It was actually called juvenile arrhythmia as well. Okay. And I started to do research on that in the late, it was 1967, 68. Huh. And I was the first one who quantified that. And so that was where I started to see things. And I was basically very interested in sustained attention, um, basically processing of information as we were all started. Wow. So, so what my question, was that you so you started this in the 60s and then the book actually came out the first polyvagal theory book came out 2009 i think it was when it was 2011 2011 okay so how like and, and now it's 2022 you have been very resilient yourself staying the course staying the course staying the course and i, I'm, I would love to know like what was your what, what was your mindset to keep on like oh, oh on so the the first conflict within the academic world was the notion of talking about heart rate variability because it was not an accepted concept since uh, uh, scientists, especially laboratory scientists, uh, look for laws of nature or cause and effect relationships. And so when you start talking about heart rate variability, they start interpreting it as you're, you're not exerting enough experimental control because you should have no variability until right. you manipulate things. It was a very, in a sense, naive period of time where people were using autonomic measures to be indicators of psychological phenomena without understanding the neural regulation of the organs. And that was my journey to explain the neural regulation of the organs because then the metrics, the measures would be much more useful. Um, I found, uh, I have a lot of kind of little stories that I, I tell my students and mentees. And I basically say, you got to read the topography of what it is to be an academic. Mm -hmm. If you want to do something interesting, you have to survive. Yes. So you have to know what they, what they need so you can do what you want. Right. And it's a very, you know, uh, you have to be observant and aware. It's like you know, another, you're being aware of another person's state. You're being aware of a, the state of the academic system, mm -hmm. which tells you certain things. If you 
if you don't want it to be aggressive to you, you have to know what it needs. It needs that you have to publish, you have to be active in terms of societies, you have to get grants. Basically, you have to be productive. And if you're productive enough, you can steal enough of your time and enough of the resources to do things that you really want to do. You leverage it. And it's it, 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 it's an understanding that if you want to preserve your unique creativity, you can't go with the flow where the disciplines are going. You have to protect your creativity. And I would say I was very fortunate in that because I was able to uh, thrive within the academic environment, publish, you know, get awards, become officers in societies. So I was able to be both accepted and also bold enough to be creative and unique. Yes, um, but I and I think the to me the, what I admire the most is that is the stick tootiveness that you've had because some people I think after you know a certain given number of years would have said okay this isn't going anywhere but you just kept stayed the course stayed the course and it evolved and evolved and evolved. Yeah, well, it taught me I think when you and, and so like when I conceptualized the theory, the theory was a solution of a problem. It was a solution of a problem in neonatology and pediatrics really. Right, right. It was uh, why does bradycardia kill you, slow heart rates, while respiratory sinus arrhythmia protects you and they're both vagal. How could the vagus both kill you and protect you? And basically the answer was extraordinarily simple that, but no one had structured the question. And the simplicity is that they're two vagal pathways. <laughs> you know, it's like, and they basically evolve to do different things. And one is when it gets triggered in events, puts you in this conservation state of shutting down and lowering heart rate, passing out. The other one is kind of a protective system that enables everything in your body to be optimized. You can be social, you can support your digestion, you can have play. It actually has become uh, a metaphor because uh, of the social, what I call the social engagement system and sociality then became a neural modulator of our physiology and homeostatic functions. So now I was able to put together this innate drive to be social, which is human, and that it has this, a profound neurobiological consequence. It supports our health, health, growth, and restoration, homeostatic functions. Without the sociality, we don't thrive we die. And I think the, the concept of the vagal break, which is kind of like the thing that steers the, yeah. whether it's the dorsal or ventral vagus was a brilliant, that, that concept. How did that evolve? Well, the, actually, I would say that was the first thing I noticed back as a grad student. It wasn't called wow. the vagal break then. Right. I called it suppression of heart rate variability. And when we paid attention, we literally focused and took that inhibitory break off. Uh, if we were anticipating doing a movement, we do the same thing. And then I started to think about what, I was a sprinter when I was young in high school and actually first year or so in college. And the idea is what do you do to get into the blocks? You're literally getting yourself very mobilized and then you're using your breath and then you release the break. If you don't do that it, with the appropriate timing, you, you don't get out of the blocks, you know, right. it's not a casual thing. Right. So a lot of things that we do relate to the vagal break have a metabolic demand and sociality does too. So if we can turn that break on and off, we can move towards people and calm down. Mm -hmm. And if we think about what play is, it's movement with social behavior, meaning it calm, we're calm. Right. Once 
you lose the sociality of the movement it becomes aggressive on the playground. People get hurt. They stop seeing the cues of others. So we see the reciprocity is kind of this powerful container that enables our physiology to have all kinds of experiences and expressions. Right, right. And then I think that, you know, kids can be, kids can be taught social cues in some, in some, I see like social skills workshops now are cropping up and stuff, but I've also seen, you know, under chiropractic care, the kind of pediatric care that we do is I see social cues evolve. It's like, yeah, this, this, I, this, I use, I would use the word emergent. So yeah. I think uh, when we say learning social skills, I would basically ask people when you have someone who's learned social skills, how effective are those skills in social settings? Hmm. Yes. yes. So the question becomes authenticity of what a social cue is. And it's like with, with kids on spectrum being taught to make eye contact. They're, to them, eye contact is fear-inducing, really fear-inducing. Yeah. And so if they do make eye contact, their bodies are like this. And, and how do you feel when someone looks at you that way? Right. You literally feel their pain and anxiety. So why would you train someone to be in such a state of terror to engage you? Right, exactly. And that's why I think it's amazing when kids are adjusted or they use the safe and sound protocol or something that re-engages their system and now it becomes natural. Or like you say, yeah, to me, to me, that was the vote when I was developing uh, what became the safe and sound protocol. I was just totally shocked that a kid with on spectrum could be totally disorganized, totally asexual, asocial. And then after you know a few hours of this, kid would look up to me and hold my hand. You know, it was like, where did this come from? It was not a behavior that was taught. And this is the point that I really want to make when we think of social behavior as being learned. And when we look at autism, we say, well, they didn't learn to become social, but we'll teach them. Yes. And the issue, how do we teach them? We teach them with rewards because it goes through an ABA yes. model. And rewards and evaluation are basically triggers of threat. It doesn't mean they can't learn some things through those procedures. I'm not saying that. I'm saying social behavior is not going to be readily uh, available to be conditioned through ABA methods. It's much yeah. better uh, to understand that social behavior uh, or many of the attributes of social behavior are emergent properties of a physiological state. Yeah. And if the body becomes calm, it becomes social yes makes sense well um i am so thankful that we've had this opportunity to chat on the chirocast podcast uh and of course i want to plug my polyvagal informed pediatric chiropractic um seminar that's um coming up on april 2nd and then will be available for people to listen to for at least a year uh, afterwards on the polyvagal institute uh, website um and uh, the link will be provided in this uh, podcast uh, notes. Um, but one last thing before we end is in like a minute or so, uh, final parting words for chiropractors, chiropractic students, chiropractic faculty who might be listening to this. Well, I think, and actually I think within chiropractic practice, we, I think the underlying theory is pretty close that if you wrote, if you have the body in the right position, the behaviors, the systems 
regulate in a normal, spontaneous, emergent way. So it's this notion that inside our body is the script and we merely have to help the structure. And this is really a chiropractic model help the structure to be optimized to allow the function to express itself. And, and, you know, but the metaphor goes to everything that if, if we think of function or structure as being, I'm in a quiet room and now my body can relax and now I can become a social being rather than I get reprimanded for uh, doing something that may appear to be inappropriate, but my body need to, needed to move. So it's kind of the respect. And I think the, the uh, constructs within chiropractic uh, practices and polyvagal theory, if you join them, you say, if I understood how both structure and function uh, needs to be optimized, if I understand how these systems work, I can optimize how they function. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. That was <clears throat> this was fabulous. I so enjoy talking with you, um, and I really think the polyvagal theory has unbelievable implications with chiropractic. Um, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, and uh, I hope we can have a, a conversation soon. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Julian. Thank you very much for inviting me.